Hi, I'm Jamie McConaughey. And I'm Andrew Wycliffe. And I'm Brendan Pollock. And this is Podcast 60 on the Sunset Strip. Just to get the joke that I was going to make out of the way, um, we have been gone so long that we managed to switch over from having uh, three guys to two guys and a girl as our hosts. <laughs> yes. Uh, apologies to our, our faithful listener. Um, <laughs> it's my fault that everything, uh, that this took so long, uh, I had to... I, I moved uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast, uh, which is a real fucking pain in the ass. I don't recommend it. So, sorry. <clears throat> sorry for <laughs> the East Coast delay. <laughs> Oof. Oof. Pain. <laughs> um, which is not... Which is, un- funds, which is too bad. Unfortunately, that's not the, uh, the episode we're doing this time. This time we're doing the, the long lead story, um, which is... Oh boy, it's an episode. I'm... I'm just gonna get y'all set up for this. Um, this when I when I finished watching this, I was kind of like, okay, so that was actually a great 45 minutes of television. So that that's where I'll be <laughs> through this episode. But like outside some Danny Trip stuff, I, for what this is, there's nothing better than this. I was I was just thinking like. We, I was saying to on um, another Discord that I'm in that we needed to come back because Aaron Sorkin came out like 48 oh hours before we recorded this and <sighs> said the most Aaron Sorkin thing he could possibly oh, say. We swear, right? It's been so long I don't remember if we swear, but we swear. We fucking swear. We fucking no, swear. we swear. This There's no way I can swear. This fucking guy. <laughs> I'm just like I saw it and I was just like, dude. Fuck you, I'm defending you this weekend. Like, fuck you so much. <laughs> like, how did you say that in 2020? Like, just how? Well, like, so we've been... We, we talked, like, way back in, I think, our first episode. We talked about how Aaron Sorkin, he is incapable of seeing the future. And I really think... I really think that this episode in particular, like, standalone, outside of all cultural context, I can see how you'd like it, but... In terms of seeing the future, it's one of his worst episodes. Oh, no, it's it's terrible. We'll get to it. Like, I had to stop and take notes because I'm like, wait, are we going to make this show about, um, is this where the show becomes about Matt and Harriet? And, like, this is what we're running with? That, you know, it's going to be, like, a blue Karen and a white liberal. Like, that's, that's the thing we're getting here. We're getting a devout blue Karen and a white liberal together. And that's, you know, the future of America. But... That's third act stuff we'll talk about. But, oh no, like this is, in term, the only thing I would say that Aaron Sorkin was at all futurist about with this episode and maybe anything, because he got Nicolas Cage wrong. Like, Nicolas Cage did not become that kind of punchline. But when the Martin Sykes guy, I kept thinking they were saying Screlly, and I'm like, maybe it's just something about that name. 
Like, how did <laughs> how did Aaron Sorkin predict Martin Shkreli's fucking name ten years early that it was Sykes? But I'm like, oh, I mean, it was close enough for me to be entertained by that thought for five minutes. But no, 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 totally in agreement. And this episode also ages terribly. There are fucking homophobic jokes from the news desk in 2006. It's gross. Like, it's not like icky. Yeah, it's. <laughs> It's not so much age terribly as just was terrible at the time continues to be terrible. <laughs> so uh, one thing that was kind of futurist, and I don't know if this is like, I forget what he was doing at this time, but like when they, they make it, they have a comment early on in the episode about how musical guest Sting is, is playing a lute. I'm like, that's a really mean spirited joke at Sting's expense. And then he's just up there doing it like, oh. No, no, no. That, that's <laughs> a thing did. that Sting really did. <laughs> It's like, oh, did he really do yeah. that? Oh, he did that. Didn't he, he had a classical, um, what do you call it? He had a classical music phase. And I mean, he never really got out of it, right? Like, that was sort of his last big phase. And, you know, I, as speaking as someone who, in his teens, in the mid-90s, was into the police for a while, but burned out on them because I had two co-workers at a video store who played this live police movie every monday night that we worked together for like a year and i it's like if you want to learn why the police aren't good even without getting into you know rape culture it's just listening to them do the same thing over and over again and you're just like that's not very good actually but at the end of this no they got me like we'll get to it like this this it might just be because Somebody was talking about Sarah Paulson earlier or last night, but it's just like this was, you know, I was like, it, it sucks that Sarah Paulson doesn't have a great role here, but damn, she's amazing. She is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They. This is like possibly the most like on the nose the ending song ever gets, but it's also the most effective it ever is. Look, I'm, I'm not totally against musical cues in TV being kind of on the nose. You know, I, yeah. like, I like Scrubs just fine. Scrubs was always really <laughs> on the nose with mm. musical cues. Um, so, you know what? I like Fields of Gold. I can roll with this. Although I have trouble seeing Sting as a sex symbol because my first impression of him, outside of, like, the voice on the radio, was in a thong knife fighting with Kyle MacLachlan. So, oh, yeah, but yeah was... I... <laughs> He was a sex symbol doing that. Like, yeah, I guess you're too young to remember that. But yeah, Sting was a brooding 80s sex symbol. Um, Stormy Monday would be a good one to see if you're curious, like how he played with that. But it was a thing. Like, my mom had minor Sting hots. He was a little young for her, but like, she like was into Sting for a bit. Like, she got out of it eventually, but like, you know... 10 oh, years, I, I, she was, like, into Sting. I totally buy him as a sex symbol. It's just, like, because that was my first physical impression of him, he's basically, like, whenever I think about him as a sexual person, I basically, that one, like, well, mark me down as scared and horny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we should talk... Oh, go ahead. Who plays him in the new movie? Does, does anybody know off the top of their head? Uh, let, me, let me look. Uh... Let me look it up. Uh, what was his character's name? He's one of what? He's oh, something Harkonnen. What's his? What's his? I can never remember that character's name. Let me look. Fade Ratha. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. He's Fade. Okay, Matt Kessler played him in the TV miniseries and... Which is not a very good TV miniseries. Where is... No, Judd Oman plays Janice. Okay, let's see. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, no. It's a secret as of right now. Fade Ratha is not on the cast list on Wikipedia. Would he not show... Is it a... Is it, um... Split in half? Are they doing the second half of the story in another movie? I don't no. think so. They haven't. That's the case. He might not. But that's the case. They might not. They might. He might not show up until movie two, or he might be like a post-credit singer or something. Sting. Yeah. I, I, how cool would it be if it was just still Sting? Just. <laughs> I, I'm down for that. Um. Uh, unfortunately, like I just need to shit on everybody's day. This is fucking Warner Brothers. It's gonna be Johnny Depp in a fucking thong at the age of 57. Uh, yeah. Uh, sweating liquor and probably doing something terrible. And being like, she hit me first. It'll be a she hit me first scene with Johnny Depp as the tag. Like, it's Warner Brothers. They never learn. Like, I don't know. They decided to only make one more um, Fantastic Beast or whatever they're called movie after that last one. Yeah, but three I think... More. That was budgetary, and also at some point, J.K. Rowling, we're so off topic, J.K. Rowling will do something <laughs> terrible, like shoot a child, like... I mean, she's already she's already done some pretty terrible things. Just, well, I mean, she, she like, will do something that will be criminal and not fraud, because, I mean, fraud is in her future anyway, I'm sure. You have to imagine there's some poor beleaguered assistant who's, like, texting her increasingly desperate polite versions of please stop talking (laughs) just log off for like three weeks it's fine well what i so like i have this whole like doomsday scenario where maybe we should cut all of this but we have to we have to record this and keep it for you know (laughs) yeah keep it for posterity keep it for posterity because when this fucking happens because i'm going to say it again what's going to happen is She's going to self-fund an adaptation of her fucking, like, let's somehow make Dress to Kill, like, actually violently transphobic. And she's going to self-fund it. Johnny Depp will star in it. Graham Lynham will direct it. And Warner Brothers will distribute it. And I'm like, and then it'll end up being church people. And people are like, there's no way church people will do it. And I'm like, by then, like, it's going to be all fucking off. Like, Trump 20, you know, 40, like, it's going to be the new reality. So church people are going to get to do whatever the fuck they want, including supporting Johnny Depp or what witches. But then I was thinking about how Graham Lynham made fun of Harry Potter when nobody else did. So it's kind of this weird thing that, like... He's ended up with someone who he mocked um, mercilessly on a public platform, or not even a public platform. IT Crowd Pilot mocks Harry Potter, adult readers of Harry Potter. Like, I, it's I remember, Moss's yeah. first joke. Yeah. And I'm just like, how fucking, ugh. Okay, sorry. I haven't gotten to bitch about it, J.K. Rowling enough, basically, <laughs> because all of, like, I've had to dump blue karen friends over this and i'm just like nope we're done 2020 that can be a dividing line if you say you're okay with jk rowling and you know what she's doing we're done yeah it's it's rough it's rough all over thank, but, thank you for putting up with my you know fucking gen x cis male rant um and now now back to our it's, 
It's totally fine. Like, I've been trying to avoid ranting about, like, her and Graham Linehan too much on Twitter. Because every time I do, someone's gonna come say something shitty to me on Twitter. And right now, I just don't need it. Um, but, yeah. no, let's let's say shitty things about Aaron Sorkin, who is not awful, just kind of a bad writer. Well, but, I think but he's that's awful. The, that awful. You think he's <laughs> awful, that. but I can... We're going to go through this episode, and I can sit here and go, okay, but this is actu- this is good, actually. Like, all right, let's 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 get started, because... Oh, I just I just mean he's awful, like, morally awful. Oh, no, 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 yeah. <laughs> a... Well, I mean, I mean, Danny is cool here because he's suggesting, you know, mm, rape culture is the way to go. Like, there's a whole monologue like, where I'm like... This is this is just rape culture, isn't it? This is sitcom rape culture turned into a hour uh, to a drama thing. Like this is terrible. Like in two thousand six, this I was so like, cool. I do like that the the episode opens with this bit where the the reporter lady is like talking up how important Studio Sixty is, and even the show has to realize like this is so self important. Even we have to undercut this with the lobster suit. Oh, uh, and that it, it's okay. It, it's Aaron Sorkin's favorite joke. Uh, but it, this is this is not X. X happens. This is a serious thing. Guy in a lobster suit. And yes, it's it's an obvious joke. But you know, given that they they imply at the end of the episode that like Matt and Harriet's romance is the country healing, I was like, shut up. Yeah. Shut up, Aaron. Although, okay, so I gotta give it to the. On the on the subject of the lobster suit, the the first lobster suit gag is bad. Basically, you know, mm. uh, they're they're talking up how great Studio sixty is, and then what's his name? Um, I got my Tom. I got my yeah. Tom, Tom yeah. walks in wearing a lobster suit because uh, you know, haha, it's so funny. He's he's in a costume. Uh, but that one, you know, that one's whatever. It's it's hack, but it it's not offensive. Uh, the later, when the lobster suit returns later, that one actually got a good laugh for me, where <laughs> she says, she asks Tom for a pen, and he's just standing there in the lobster suit, like, feeling around for pockets. <laughs> that's, a, that's a solid joke. I, that's I a like good how, joke. I, he also is, like, in the background of one shot, and I feel like some someone, probably the director, is like, you know what's funny? Lobster suits are funny. Just put it in the background. Yeah, I mean, like, they had to pay for a lobster suit. They're going to they're gonna get all the money out of that lobster suit. Put him in the background. So, so yes, let's let's actually get to the episode because so the right. the thrust, the main thrust of this episode's narrative is that the lady from the last episode, the reporter lady, is still hanging out, and she like wants to write around about Matt and Harriet. She she's writing the the eponymous long lead story. Is that a thing people say? Did we did cover that last time? Like we talked about how we weren't her. sure if it was real. Um, but I don't think I we never, like you know Googled it. But I, I I think I definitely said I'd never heard of it from a writing degree. But I didn't have a journalism. But yeah, I don't. I'm a political science major, so yeah, because I so. just need to be that useless. Um. So yeah, that's the the that's the main plot, and the subplot is about Jordan wanting to reject a frankly sadistic sounding reality show, and. Instead of picking up that reality show, to get a show written by yet another Aaron Sorkin. The Schmester Swing. <laughs> Oops, too many Sorkins. 
But, okay, this isn't fair because it's at the end, but it also gives Aaron Sorkin the point where he gets to then be the hero to his younger self from his older self (laughs) while impressing his boss and sort of making it seem like he's more important than she is at her job. (laughs) So, so like, this subplot is only, like, I want to say, like, three to four scenes max. So it's not really like a whole running thing. It, it is one of the things I was talking about when I said that Aaron Sorkin does not have future vision because he's talking about how like this show, you know, they want to take it to HBO, but then it won't get seen by anyone. I'm like, dude, HBO is about to blow up. Actually, screw it. This was like 2006, right? Yes. Yeah. HBO was in the process of blowing up. Like the Sopranos were at this point. The Wire was at this point. Like, People saw stuff that was on HBO. It's also extra funny because Aerith Sorkin's next TV show goes to HBO. Well, oh my god, that's did the newsroom he... go to HBO? Yeah. Yeah, the newsroom started on... Or, well, I guess it the whole time was on HBO? Uh, ah, that's great. He's not, he's not dumb, you know, you're the over HBO. You want yeah. that HBO money, like... No, but yeah. like, it, I'm also, like, hearing the description of the show, I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry... Aaron, older Aaron Sorkin, female Aaron Sorkin, and young Aaron Sorkin. No, this does sound like it's more of an HBO show than NBC. Than and NBC in 2006. For for the listeners, just in case you haven't, you know, you're listening to this and haven't subjected yourself to this terrible TV show, uh, the the show Wonderful in show. question Wonderful. is is called uh, Nations a very thinly veiled West Wing uh, analog uh, that takes place at the United Nations instead of the West Wing. And, and you it's, gotta, uh, and it's being chopped around by a character named Schmeren Schmorkin. But it's also like when they're talking about it, the unspoken thing is that this is after, you know, get us out of the UN had started being a thing thanks to uh, Bush too. And it's like, so this is like really edgy in addition to sounding incredibly boring. Like, because the West Wing, at least they're dealing with actual like problems or they're putting together a speech. This would be what? The staffers at the UN um, having a shitty day trying to like get the microphones working? Like, yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, like they're going to, I don't know consider discussing a non-binding resolution it'll just get shot down by like hungry or something right it'll be like every every episode ends with the uh like some really inspired i don't know french diplomats assistant maybe not the french but like uh i don't know somebody uh coming up with some marginally nice thing for like Palestinian kids. And then they get to it and it's just like the U S Israel and Russia go, Nope. And they're like, okay, they don't get toothpaste today. And that's the end of the episode. Like it would just be, it'd be too cynical for HBO ever. Not just, you know, now or then like it's Aaron Sorkin, not thinking through his concept again which is sort of you know the west wings um fictional uh yeah it would i I mean i can see a show about the un being compelling but a it is way too it would have to be like way too bleak for aaron sorkin to ever write it 
and B, it would also have to be way too bleak to ever appear on a network TV. Like, maybe you could take it to FX at the best. But other than that, no, it would just be too dark. Because it, would, it... You would have to resol resolve every episode with, like, Putin coming in saying, no, we're not going to help Iran this afternoon. Fuck off. Well, there is... No, he um... would help Iran, right? I can't remember. Does I should forget help? where Putin, what Putin feels yeah. about Iran. But it, it uh, could start... Probably, I mean, it's... What if it started with Donald Trump addressing the UN saying how wrong he'd been the last four years and how he was going to work <laughs> with everyone to make a better world? <laughs> ah! That's the, wor the worst, that's how the it worst thing. The worst thing about that, that statement he made, but for those of you who are listening to this in the enlightened future, assuming we live past <laughs> the next three weeks, um, the, uh, the the statement Aaron Sorkin made was that if he was writing the 2020 election um, when Donald Trump inevitably lost and refused to secede power, all the Republicans in the Senate and House would go to Trump and say, sir, it's time to go. And it's just, it is, I don't know how you can have watched the last four, the last 12, the last 40 years happen and think there is even a ghost of a chance of that. Uh, I mean, it's because so, he's, you know, he's a fucking rich white guy. Like, he doesn't give a shit. Like, obviously, like, it's Aaron Sorkin. Like, he sucks. But the worst, he, the yeah, worst thing about that, about that is that it made, for the first time in history, it made Ben Shapiro right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, it's the, the most, uh, the most true that uh, Onion article of the worst person ever <laughs> made a good point article has ever been. <laughs> God, oh. yeah, it, Sorkin just—I don't know—he's—he has no real understanding of how politics works. Yeah, it's, it's uh, not our okay. We got to get to the thing, but my—I I do want to make this last observation that the West Wing is basically like if you took Frank Capra movies before Frank Capra came out as a white nationalist or whatever the fuck he was up to in the fifties and sixties. And Yike. you took those, like, the Capra political trilogy, and you mixed it with ER, and you said it was reality. And yes, it, it seemed like a great reality to watch on television, but nobody should have gotten confused that that meant Aaron Sorkin, you know, should be listened to about anything. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the, only, the only thing that happens in the first scene is that this, this reporter lady is still hanging around and bugging Matt. Although I would like to note that I just have another note about how utterly sadistic that clock is for existing. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's just it's so terrible. I love it. I love that well, clock. <laughs> there is the nice part that you, you get the visual of Aaron Sorkin sitting around performatively going, I'm eating it. Did anybody hear me? I'm eating it in here. I'm eating it. <laughs> Pay some attention to me, the writer. I'm a genius and I'm eating it. Like it's Willie hears you. Willie don't care. There's a thing in there about like the leading joke or whatever, um, where mm. uh, it's Christine Latte and Matt Perry bantering. And there's this leading joke thing. And it's funny because he then uses a leading joke like four more times in the episode. <laughs> Including yeah, he, he, having a character stare at someone who makes a leading joke and like wait it out until like it, it, uh, the second best scene of the episode. But yeah, so that, I just wanted to point that out that, you know, Sorkin is explaining how comedy works to his audience and uh, but then not going to show them 
what they've learned later. Like, it's just so... I mean, maybe if the show had been on HBO, it really would have worked out better. But then we get into where I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to defend this episode hardcore because the Sarah Paulson, Christine Lottie scene where they talk about Sarah Paulson's, you know, not Hallmark Channel because that Hallmark Channel is fucked up. But like Aaron Sorkin's daydream about what a good Christian looks like scene where she explains her Ooh. faith to Christine Lottie. I mean, Ooh, it's like, I've, it's just I've, like, ooh, guys, like, oh, this is not good. But they're both like good at it. So you don't care in a way. Aaron, I've got some, some complaints about this scene. Aaron, it's uh, okay to write what you know. You don't know this. Stop. Oh, we're going to get to that in a second because there's some great shit on that front coming up, but. My my only my only last note about the opening scene is at one point um Matt says to the reporter lady his name Martha uh Martha Odell yeah okay because I keep I, they kept saying her name and my brain kept putting the name of that um that Elizabeth Olsen movie about the cult in my head every time they said it Martha Marley Martha Marcy May Marlene and I couldn't remember which one was her <laughs> actual name. <laughs> Um, so at one point that he says, we're like, you've covered wars. And is that a meme from dead rising or am I? Crazy? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's dead rising. The, okay. uh, the main character of dead rising insists he's a real, a real respectable photojournalist because he's covered wars. Uh, when in fact, he's just an idiot. Is that okay. So that's, that's a game. It's a video. It's a video yeah, game. That's yeah. a game. Um, cause I, the I, whole covering war things is also in the 1989 Batman now that now that we're talking about it oh yeah it is yeah, yeah that's how is. that's, that's how that. vicky vale's serious man she's covered the war in corto maltese like so so the, the one other thing before we move on to harriet and martha talking is i actually thought the the stolen cell phone sketch was like a really conceptually funny yes like there's a joke there that actually yeah. works yeah just, hey. I, I feel like they play it the wrong way like you gotta make it so that the reporter is like, you live in this rundown crap hole, and he's like, no, we're fine. What's wrong with you? Instead of the uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was gonna be that just because it's Aaron. I mean, it's two thousand six, and it's Aaron Sorkin. But yeah, but like the joke where the news is like obsessively cult, um, covering this girl's lost cell phone. That's a solid joke. Solid joke. Yeah, gold and, star for you, Aaron. And I was just kind of like, that was when I was like, oh, wait a second. They, Sarah Paulson's gotten comfortable doing this at this point, like with the Nancy Grace stuff. Like, I was like, wait a second, is this, is this actually a good sketch? And I'm like, I'm enjoying this. I'm curious what's going to happen next. And I was like, oh, who's Jeannie going to be? Like, I was like, why is this working out? And then we go into the scene with her and Christine Lati, and I'm like, yeah, this, this doesn't work exactly, but Sarah Paulson's still really good at it. Like... That that's that right there is my review of every season of American Horror Story I've seen. <laughs> this doesn't work. Sarah that's Paulson's also really basically the entire review of this show too. It, God, it doesn't work, but Sarah Paulson's really good. <laughs> Are any of those more recent seasons of American Horror Story worth watching? I stopped after the Carnival one because it was so uh, bad. I've never seen any of it, so I'm not. No, it's really bad. Useful. <laughs> yeah, the last one. The last one I saw was the one with the witches, and I I I don't remember there being a carnival one, so I assumed that was before the carnival. The, the, one. the witch one was right before the carnival okay. one, and then I was like, I can't do this anymore. You have like four good scenes a season. I can't do it for that anymore. I'm sorry. 
All right, so now we get to the conversation between Harriet and Martha, which you're right, it doesn't work exactly, but you're, it does feel, I don't want to say authentic. It's, I, um, I hated this scene, actually. <laughs> so, so the scene, like, so Harriet comes off stage and Martha grabs her in the hallway and is like, hey, I want to talk to you about this piece I'm writing. And Harriet's, like, trying to get out of the interview. Like, she's like, okay, look, it's, like, the middle of the night. I just want to go home and go to sleep. And also, she clearly doesn't want to talk to a reporter. And so Martha convinces her to talk by being like, look, there's there's people who are good at their job, and there's people who are bad at their job. And do you trust that I'm a reporter who's good at my job? And, and she's like, okay, fine. I'll, you know, I'll trust you. And then... Martha proceeds from this, like, actually, I'm good at my job and I'm going to say something interesting by asking a series of the most, like, mundane and, like, dumb background information questions possible. Like, who are your parents? Where did you live? Tell me about your childhood. (laughs) Like, it, it works in the scene because Harriet, like, rises to the questions and you know and sarah paulson actually like acts it well and like she's telling a interesting she's telling an interesting story to the audience who would who have no way of knowing this we have no way of knowing about harriet's past at this point but this woman who is like this like professional reporter who's like the best of the best like how does she not know the basic background like she's just asking basic background questions of like one of the stars of the show that she's writing about i think the implication is supposed to be that she's like trying to get harriet to let her guard down and say something more meaningful later on in the conversation which is why she's not writing any of that stuff down but they don't establish that Uh, very well if that's the intent mm. Okay, so that's a fair interpretation. I it is, and it's it's actually more complimentary than my own. Which is <laughs> that, um, so this episode, and it was this scene where I was like, "Holy shit, who directed this?" Because it's like a really well directed scene, and it's also um, the whole episode's really well directed, which is weird because it's not Tommy Schlamey doing it. It doesn't have like the pomp of Tommy Schlamey doing this. It's instead David Petraka, who does a good yeah. job. Um, but yeah, the stories... He's, story's got, a of, he's by... got a lot of good shows on his resume. Uh, I'm looking at his resume now. He's got Hung yeah. on there. He's got Jessica Jones. He's got Game of Thrones. Okay. So yeah, he knows. Yeah, he's good at this. Um, but the story's by Dana Calvo. And I was like, okay, so it's a story by a woman. Sorkin then took her story and wrote it. But we still are... A, probably getting her plot breakdown which is why there's very little of danny because he kind of sucks which is the most distressing thing about going through this show is realizing i was wrong about bradley whitford um back in 2005 i'm sorry he was funny in robocop 3 like what am i gonna do uh we were all 14 once but i sort of saw this as they finally realized that they need to get somebody in there for an exposition device because you've got a cast that can deliver exposition well, but they don't have a way of doing it. Um, so you've got Christine Lottie in there. And the other thing about her being this great reporter, uh, okay, what does that fucking mean? Bob Woodward's a great reporter. He's a fucking piece of shit idiot too. Like, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> done. I'm done with appeals to like authority like no 
none of these guys are very like what did we learn four years ago nobody knew shit right like <clears throat> i mean you know we that's us that's us looking back on it from hindsight but honestly in 2006 i wouldn't be trusting good reporters either because iraq was three years ago right let's not yeah. forget yeah, yeah let's not i mean at this point Okay, so 2006, I had stopped reading, I mean, I stopped reading what? I stopped reading the Atlantic Monthly when fucking, um, they did this whole thing about how, like, when Bush got elected, they did this big last issue about, like, their dedication to liberalism while they changed the paper stock to be twice as expensive. And then right on from then, it was just, you know, proto New York Times both siderism. And I mean, at this point, Harper's, I guess, would have still been good, but they didn't have like fucking investigative. They didn't have long lead stories like this. It was uh, the editor bitching about Israel until like he got too problematic and had to, you know, run a newsletter or whatever. Like there was I wasn't reading Vanity. Like who's reading Vanity Fair going? Yeah, this is this is an accurate representation of the real world. Like we knew everybody was lying at this point. Yeah, I don't know. It's I think that Sorkin, as I, I if I had to name Sorkin's like original sin, both as like a writer, is that he is so in love with existing power structures that yes. he can never yes. bring himself to recognize their flaws. He can never bring himself to recognize the media's flaws, television executive flaws. Like yeah, and, he's and that's he's that, a, I think that's what I mean, we're talking about. I mean, he's a sucker. He's a sucker. Like yeah, he's exactly. A, That's exactly he's, what I mean. Yeah, he's someone who has flourished in the current system, and is so like he's so self-obsessed. He like can't question that. Like you know, he did well in this system, so the system must be good. Like, it, are, you, are I'm sorry. Are you questioning Aaron Sorkin's street cred right now? <laughs> oh no, <laughs> his street cred. Oh. <sighs> Okay, so hang on, wait, 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 wait. Before we get too far from this one, I I do have to take us back uh, a few a few minutes, actually maybe like ten minutes now, uh, to the uh, Andrew. What you said that this this episode was uh, has a story by credit of Dana by uh, Dana Calvo. I just want to point out, you know, I feel like I wouldn't be doing my job as the resident Sorkin hater. If I didn't point out, Sorkin has a long and storied history of stealing credit from his writers. Oh. And when when they actually wrote the script, only giving them a story by credit. So Oof, that's right. I Maybe would not her. be surprised. If, I, I wouldn't be surprised if most of this episode was written by uh, Dana and then Sorkin just... You know, put in the rape did a jokes. pass. Yeah, yeah. Well, did a pass. So, put in the rape jokes. Put in the off-color, like weird, racist, street cred comment. <laughs> okay, so uh, before, before, we move on, before we move on, I want to ask y'all one thing. I have one thing. So the director of this episode, David Hederaka, he's got a pretty good TV roster. You know, he directed a few episodes of Jessica Jones, of Game of Thrones. You know, good stuff. But he has exactly one. Film oh god! Friend. I'm going to start giving you hints, and I want to see how long it takes y'all to figure out um, what it is. It is a sequel to a 2001 movie about dance. Step up to the street. No, close. Yeah. Save the last <laughs> dance too. Correct. 
<laughs> save the wow. last save the, wow. the lastest dance. I saw that on on his IMDb. I'm like, that can't be a real. Oh my god, it's a real thing. Oh, these the poor t- like when you look at TV directors who went to movies, like it is distressing. Like you're just like Ever- that must have been you know that must have just hurt your soul to get that you know DGA level. Like ooh. A friend of mine, like, so every so often you get, like, I don't know if Ryan Johnson started in TV, but I know that he did, like, a lot of his best work in TV. Or a lot of his least controversial work in TV. Um, but, like, you know, most most TV directors, like, my, a, friend, my, a friend of ours did a video on the Fifty Shades movies, mm-hmm. and he talked about how the director of the second and third one was just a TV director, and how they're basically, when they're, like, on set on a TV show, they're very used to just like showing up and like everything works without them, basically. Well, like, right. like, yeah, because <clears throat> there's, yeah, there's a lot of the a lot of that infrastructure exists outside of the director because mm-hmm. you know you on have TV, directors yeah. just that... like coming in for an episode or something. So in TV, the yeah the producers and everyone else are carrying a lot more of the weight. I'm trying to think of good people who started like Vince Gilligan never left TV, and I think that's probably smart, so... I mean, nobody's... Other... What's his face? Maybe the guy did Abrams? The Shield, never jumped ship. The um... Jabrams went to movie, so I guess... And I guess he does... He does okay. I'm not super stoked about all of his movies. Um, we're not gonna... We're not gonna talk... We're not talking Star Wars. We're not... I am okay. on a full okay, yeah, Star that's, Wars discourse this is the, uh... lockdown. We we've reached the we're too far off track point again. No, I'm not even too far off track. It's just for the rest of the year, I'm on full Star Wars discourse lockdown. I don't do it anymore. Okay, so uh, we've got. Okay, so anyway, uh, Harriet's being interviewed. Right, Harriet's being interviewed. Then we go. We we finish up the interview. They like the 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 lady drops some weird um detail, which does become important. That like. Up until Harriet arrived on the show, Matt's sketches weren't getting picked up. I do want to say another thing about Harriet's background is also that it doesn't fit in with what we know about Harriet. Not at Harriet all. Describes... She's from the North. Yeah. Like, what? Harriet <laughs> describes herself as being from a family of, it's like, well, how many, she says she's got seven. Like, a ton of brothers. Yeah, seven brothers. And she says, none of whom, like, she says, Basically, her mom is the only religious person in in their family. Her dad's okay. like a, a shitty drunk. None of her brothers are religious. It's her and her mom. But every uh, like she paints herself as being like from this like deep evangelical like like earlier like even before that uh, before that conversation even starts. There's a joke about like, oh, what would they call me in your in your household? Oh, you know, you'd be the the devil's whore from dc and it's like no that's but but what you've told us about your house is that's not what they would call her because your house isn't a religious house your house is nine people two of them are religious and also her it doesn't sound like her mom would do that either after we hear about the mom yeah because her, her mom's this sweetheart who you know just wanted to believe in the best in people this is very now that we're uh, talking about for each other. yeah, now that we're both talking about Dana Calvo, or we're all talking about Dana Calvo possibly writing this, like at this point, I'm like, why is Sorkin all of a sudden concerned with making the female characters like 
like this scene at times passes Bechtel with flying colors, like for <laughs> 35 second stretches. Like that's impressive on any show oh, from 2006, Sorkin. you know, and that's especially it. for Sorkin. So it's like, it's it, instead of it being like this religious story, it instead is this like heartwarming tale of like, you know, a mother and daughter and what's the last, um, yeah, just, the line is, what's the biggest diff? What are the differences between you and your mom? And it's the answer is hopefully as little as possible. I'm like, that's a fairly profound, you know, statement to make. Like, and they yeah. do nothing with it. But that is a that is a big statement to make, and it gives Paulson like fucking something to just chew on right there. Like, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it also is an incredibly like. It is an incredibly Sorkin-esque, like, misunderstanding of the way the world works. Because, like, Harriet is... Harriet is an evangelical Christian. She is, like, the reason that there is this, like, tension between Matt and Harriet is that she is from a religion... Like, she's from a hateful religion. That Mm -hmm. it's, like hates the way that things are and hates people for who they are and like wants to force the world to change into in their image but that's like it is like in this scene you see like it is a hundred percent not who harriet is harriet does not have the beliefs of an evangelical christian like she like she she's empathetic she couldn't possibly be the person who doesn't understand the problem with like going on the 700 club or like you know especially she makes a pat robertson joke this episode right or somebody does yeah yeah i think it's her yeah she does it's her her. it's just like it's just this like there's this fundamental misunderstanding of (laughs) sorry (laughs) that's okay um, no, a hundred percent agree. Like that is the problem with it. And that's why it's like, uh, I'll spoil now. My final note for this episode is it's a highbrow soap opera and good at it. Like it's, you know, Sorkin's shockingly naive. Like he and what's her face clearly did not have any like in depth conversations about her beliefs or if they did, so, like, she gave him nonsense. So there's this. So one of the things that I've noticed, so my mom was extraordinarily leftist, um, and but she was from Virginia. And one of the things I've noticed about people, especially from the Northeast, um, which is where I live now, people in the South are regarded as nicer because they're not overtly rude. And I think that people in the Northeast tend to take evangelical beliefs at face value from that perspective like they think oh well they're polite so their beliefs must be nice i'm like no they're not mm. the the, yeah. the westboro baptist church are not an aberration they're just louder than everyone else yeah they're they're i mean they're an aberration in that they will say the quiet part out loud they'll, but, they'll say yeah. the loud part the aberration loud. is that it's being said loud not that it's there so and the, i always find that very condescending like that they mu- that they're so simple and nice and therefore they must be um they must be you know nicer than us because they're so much simpler and it's just like I I always go back to that Thirty Rock quote when they're in Georgia where they're like no all of God's children are terrible 
Um, and as much as as much as I think as much as I think that Thirty Rock is a more overtly comedic show, I think it had a better grasp on who evangelicals are. They can be complex people, and they can also just be pricks. Yeah, I yeah. mean that's this is Sorkin's thing. Is Sorkin doesn't want to say anybody's stupid or evil, and the problem is that these people are stupid and evil, or stupid and or evil, like. Not to get, yeah. you know, to, like, that's the problem. Um, we, we are not saying Southerners. We are not saying Christians. We are saying white evangelicals there. Yes. We, I there mean, are nice you know, Christians and there on are the other nice hand, Southerners. I mean, there if you not. voted for Trump, you should probably stop listening. Like, fuck you. But, yeah. sorry. <laughs> well, I just yeah. wanted to make that clear because, you know, I know there are good Christians out there. They probably don't vote for Trump. Uh, they're like um, Harriet. Um, but, okay, so... I can't believe I'm the one who's going to push us to the next seed, but shit, I think we've been here for <laughs> no, 15 no, we, minutes. We need, no, we need, to, we need to move on. We need to move on. Where were we? Um, so then okay, we so we're in scene three now. We're in scene three. Then we get into the bit where What's-His-Name is pitching the sadistic reality show. Uh, yeah, so this guy who's a... I guess he's a stand-in for... Um, ah, shit, who's the, the producer of... Uh, survivor who does all the uh you, you mean the guy who's married to a fundamental christian and sitting all the on all the extremely racist trump tapes that guy uh probably that's yeah like... i can't remember what is yeah, yeah i know yeah that fucking guy uh burnett or something yeah <laughs> yeah mark burnett that dude, that's that guy. dude yeah so the reality show he's pitching is like you get like however many couples into this house and then you hire private investigators to look into their past. And I, you know, I'm aware that that show is going to make bank. But if I'm sitting there in that meeting, I'm going to be like, yo, dude, go to jail. Uh, actually, I have some uh, I have some issues with the show just from a logistical capacity. Uh, OK, so first <laughs> off, he's he's pitching it as like, OK, part of the spectacle is that we're going to be finding out like the things about these people in real time. It's like, okay, if that's the case, then, like, okay, clearly you can't do that because you need to have picked interesting contestants beforehand. So, like, the like the whole, his whole idea of, like, the spectacle of this show is that, like, well, it's going to be interesting because we're, you know, we're filming the episodes and within a week we're doing all the post-production and, and they're airing. So, like, everyone... So, you know, the audience is is learning things as we're learning things as the show is happening. And it's like, you know, it, it the whole media circus is happening uh, together at the same time. And it's like, but that's not possible because isn't... you have to vet the people beforehand. So, you know, that there's actually something to find. So, like, I don't know. It's just it's well, I mean, it's 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 it, it, it doesn't work on its face. It's not even well, like, right. It's, it's not it's... even a. <laughs> It's a Studio 60 um, potential television yeah. show. Like, of course it doesn't work. None of them do. Like, um, yeah. But I think it's just, you know, the scene's more about getting to watch Amanda Pete like, the revulsion on her face, like, come through when you realize she's not going for it, as they just say worse yeah. and worse things. Like, I kind of zoned during the guy's spiel at one point, because I'm like, oh yeah, this scene, like, he just talks, says terrible things in a row. But also, I think this, I don't know if it necessarily dates poorly, but 
we are no longer in the point where reality television crosses over to real news. Like it's it's a subsection of real news, but it's not like it was at the time when you know American Idol yeah. was or uh, Survivor and those first things and that sort of thing. Like it, it's no longer it doesn't have like the cultural penetration that it did at that point. Yeah, the reality TV moment as like the thing it wasn't over at this point, and obviously it's still there, but it was that window was closing. Um, like there were, you weren't getting like, gee, I wonder what it'd be like if some person from a reality show suddenly invaded the mainstream culture and completely annihilated everything. Uh, hmm. uh, nope, we're not doing that either. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, but it's just such a sadistic premise. Um, and I know that reality TV does, can support some truly heinous premises, but on the other hand, you know, that one about wanting to marry Prince Harry only lasted like 10 episodes because everyone went. You know, what the fuck is wrong with you people? That was a real <laughs> thing. Really... Look it up. I don't remember what it's called. Yeah. But it was a real thing, people. I think it was just called "I Want to Marry Prince Henry." That's or Harry. Did I give him whatever his name is? Starts with an H. That's all that matters. <laughs> I will give the show some credit here for uh, showing a measure of restraint. In that, like, so basically, like the the reality show that's being pitched is basically like hey, let's make a spectacle out of what's happening to Jordan right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and they only, they, there is like a passing comment of it, but I, you know, they, I, I'm glad that they just kind of left it at that and didn't like, didn't make it that Jordan's problem with the show was that it was like a personal thing. She just, that just immediately gets dismissed. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I honestly wish they, nice. they dragged this plot point out further because I actually feel like the question of like is she going to get her way on not airing the show is a, is a concept with a decent amount of tension but then they just resolve it in one scene. You only got Ed Asner for one. like. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to just skip to the Ed Asner scene then? Uh, no, because I want to talk oh, a little bit of shit about Jamie and her friends skit. And I guess if Dana yes. Calvo wrote the episode, it's better. But like Aaron Sorkin sitting around um, writing the scene about the women giving their childless friend shit for not having a child <laughs> is like... You know, we haven't gotten to the episode about how white people shouldn't write for black people, but it's Aaron Sorkin writing for black people. That's like two episodes from now. But this one, I was just kind of like, mm, this is a little weird, I guess. I mean, also because Lauren Graham is in the scene, but we don't see her till next episode as a like real character, I think, because she's like the host, but she's just there. Yeah, she's well, she's just there as herself because she's the like she's the host she's yeah. the host for that week and it's but, just it's just not really commented on it's just, she's just I, there in the background but i think she comes that... in or was she in last episode she comes in next episode or she she is significant in the show but let's skip okay you know. i don't remember that part so but okay. i have nothing and, to say about it the, the, then... the only um the only note i have on that scene is that it's a more or less like I, I got a little weirded out by it because, like, I don't know, it's it's an it's not a super funny scene, but it is 
a reflection of something that does really happen. Yeah. But it's also it's, it's also literally just the a scene from a later episode of Seinfeld where Elaine goes and sees a bunch of her female friends and they're all going, You gotta have a baby That's the entire scene. Yeah. Well I, and it only, this one is just like to me it's it sort of hit the exact same spot as the um the the sketch earlier where they have the you know the news about the girl who lost her cell phone where it's like this is a funny concept but it's not quite being executed like it's not it's not funny yet it's you're fast it yeah yeah Yeah. it's a funny idea but it's not a funny skit and it's like yeah the this girl getting like yeah like the idea that the you know the girl is being told she's not a real person because she doesn't have a baby like yeah that's a funny idea but it's it's not a funny skit yet or it's not a good sketch yet and what's weird is that's a plot point yeah which is yeah it's funny that then matt says that and i'm like yeah you know what matt you're right it isn't funny yet go rewrite it but then uh, my other comment was when Tom is doing his shtick to the audience, like thanking them, I was like, did they really make the cast of, like did Adam Sandler, while he was pulling in movie money, stand around and like talk shit for the audience? Like, um, I... there's like, there's like one, se- I, I mentioned before that I watched through all of the seasons of SNL um, at one point, or like all of them were available on Hulu at that moment. And there's like one season where it's like right after um oh god what is the name of the guy he was on the simpsons a lot his wife murdered him um it's like phil like, hartman like, phil hartman yes it's right after oh. phil hartman died and adam sandler and mike myers are both still there but they'd already started doing movies and i have never seen two cast members who are so much like get me out of here i don't want to be here anymore <laughs> I, I do movies now, I get paid more, and I get to sleep once in a while. Yeah, I kind of figure that they just have, like, they just have Tom come out and talk to the... He's talking to the studio audience, but it's also basically just a way to have a character talk to the TV show audience and be like, Hey, here's a little expedition or exposition dump for you, let you know exactly what's happening. Set and up then... the next part of the scene. It was his joke about the fucking, uh, how like, hey, if he hadn't made it, he'd be a Domino's delivery man. And I was like, haven't you already established that your audiences are like, not doing well? Like, like remember the episode where they have to pull people in off the street? And like... Well, I, no, I think that that's different because like, okay, so normally what you would do for a studio audience is you actually would sell tickets or give away tickets and just like, you know, have people reserve them. And so you would have like a, like the sort of people you have in a studio audience for that is largely like tourists and people who are excited to be there. But Uh then they had to, in that episode, in the episode where they had to go pull people off the street, that was because they had to refilm it. So yeah, okay. that was the, the West Coast. The LA. normal audience had left, and they just needed to fill seats, so they just had to go out and grab whoever they could. So he wouldn't be talking so to the Domino's not... delivery men in this. Yeah, studio. So it's not would... like he's making a joke to a bunch of homeless people that uh, he is going to get turned into a. I, I did the job. Guy. I did the job of people who like sell comedy club tickets in Times Square for a while. Um, it's the only job where, I, where someone threatened to stab me. Uh, 
guy in a Spider-Man outfit from the it end should, of it. I shouldn't <laughs> laugh at that. I'm sorry. No, it's funny. I tell that story because it's funny. Um, and yeah, the people who buy those tickets are like, either they have to pay money for them or they have to stand in line to reserve them, which means they have to have time to stand in line and reserve them in the middle of the day, which means they have money. So yeah. you're not going to have like a working schlub in that audience. Okay. Or they're well, going to be friends of the cast members. I don't know if that's better, but it's just, it is the way it is. Um, so yeah, there's, there's that scene. Uh, I feel like we do a lot of stuff in Martha with Martha and Matt that just slid right off my brain. Uh, yeah, no, it's the Tom things. stuff. Because you're missing the whole... Oh, yeah. Of, yeah, the subplot turns into oh. Tom and... Shit. What's D.L. Hewley's character's character. name? I uh, got the cast list right here. It is Simon. Uh, Tom and Simon, oh, Simon basically being too stupid... Um, and the show not knowing how to, like, be funny about it. So it, like, comes off a little weird, but still, like, okay in the context of Studio 60, where they accidentally tell Martha O'Dell everything about, like, the breakup. And so because of her deal with the show, everybody's going to have to talk to her about the whole story, I guess. Um, I mean, but we did... We did or not, you know, they could just not do that, but then you wouldn't have the episode. Um, we, we skipped over Danny telling Matt that they're going to go to the rap party and Danny's going to get him one of those stupid FHM models so he can get over Harriet. Woof. Yeah. Woof. <clears throat> Woof, guys. Um, there's also a bit where they, I don't remember if it's right here or if it's a little bit later, where they have um, a sketch whose central, whose core joke is summed up in the title Nicolas Cage Marriage Counselor. Yes. And holy shit, that is one of the worst Nicolas Cage impressions I've ever seen in my life. It's, it's, yes, but mm, you're missing, I don't know if you're missing the historical context that I, I, I give to it, but I'm like, this is not a good Nicolas Cage, like, this is bad Nicolas Cage, like, futurism. This isn't how Nicolas Cage turned out at all. Like, I was like, when was the last time Nicolas Cage, like, had a wife? I was like, was Nicolas Cage, like, really big into being a shitty husband, like, publicly? I don't remember that. Like, I mean, I'm sure he yeah, wasn't they great, expect- but, like, he didn't, Yeah, it's like, it's go possible around. at this point in history they were ex- No, I, I mean, like, I don't have any memory. Like, 2006 Nicolas Cage would have been, what, the Wicker Man remake? Like, he was still, he wasn't direct-to-video yet. Like, he was a punchline, but, like, not this, this kind of punchline. This is also like National is Treasure this before era. Before so. or after uh, he loses all his money uh, because he hasn't been paying taxes. Around, I think it was around this point, and he did. And look, you know, as my Twitter avatar can prove, I love me some Nicolas Cage, and I think that they were kind of expecting him to like flame out and become just like. They expecting him to they, become they, they, a character from one of his movies. <laughs> I think they expected him to become uh, John Travolta, basically. Um, incidentally, to both of my co-hosts and all of our listeners, if you want a truly terrible movie to watch, can I recommend The Fanatic, starring oh, John Travolta? I will, I will not by, watch that. Thank directed you. Directed by Fred Durst of Live Biscuit fame. It's a lot. Okay, um, so but no, like, I feel like Nicolas Cage has like almost flamed out and then just recovered several times. Because the man just will not take the loss. So, well, I, okay, in in defense of this sketch, I will say it 
does like it's a bad Nicolas Cage impression, but it feels like a realistic SNL Nicolas Cage impression. That's fair. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's a compliment though. Yeah, it's I mean it's it was realistic in that like you wouldn't really expect an SNL um uh, impression to be spot on. Like it's you know it's uh it's the right shape of the thing, but not a very good copy of the thing. Let's see. Two thousand six yeah. 2005, 2006, Nicolas Cage. Lord of War is a pretty good movie, actually. Um, this, yeah, Weather, 2000, Weatherman's okay. Um, 2006 was his Man. last year. Like, this was... 2007 was Ghost Rider and Next, and yes, uh, National Treasure, Book of Secrets. So 2007 was, like, the end. But, like, 2006, I mean, World Trade Center could have been a hit. Like, they were counting on... Uh, middle America wanting to feel pride. They did not realize that nobody gave a shit if a bunch of fucking New Yorkers died in Kansas. Like, um, and then the Wicker Man remake, you know, sure, that could have been good instead of being Neil LeBute's latest fucking, you know, misogyny uh, fantasy. But 2007 Ghost Rider was kind of where people were like, eh, fucking Nicolas Cage. And then, like, Next is supposed to be terrible. Bangkok Dangerous. Next is pretty awful. Yeah, and, like, Knowing. Next to Knowing, I get confused. Um, G-Force is funny. Like, it's fucking cute. Bad Bad Lieutenant is really good. I will go all the way to that. Yeah, oh, I will too. Totally. Um, And even for What's-Her-Face, who I, I hate. Um... But yeah, I mean, this was the, and then we start getting into uh, 2011, some of this stuff starts going direct to video or whatever it would have been. But I mean, like, Drive Angry had that buzz about it. They were like, this is Nicolas Cage in a really, you know, kind of shitty exploitation movie that's really fun. But, you know, it, it was, this was basically the end. And this was not how Nicolas, like, he never, he's not like a buffoon. Like, he does not do public, uh, appearances promoting you know fucking primal where he's a buffoon like i mean and now he's just kind of he just sort of he had a few years in the mid 2000s where he was kind of like just a direct-to-video guy but now you know he's got teen titans go to the movies mandy spider-verse uh yeah i Color mean he's like, was really good he's just kind of back working I forgot he yeah. Was in spider-verse yeah he's he's yeah he's actually doing good stuff now it's the there i mean Again, completely off topic. There's clearly something about Nicolas Cage that he can't get a break with a sure hit. Like, he's... Why isn't he... Like, why isn't Scorsese throwing him a bone? Or even one of the Coppolas? Like, there's clearly something. And that kind of sucks. Because, you know, he's a great actor. But he's Uh not a guy who's on a night... Or on a... With a talk... A silly talk show where he's like yelling about women who are mean to him or something like it's just but yet it's studio 60's best realized skit of the episode almost like yeah well i mean it's again it it, i think it is realistic to snl and like compare this to like celebrity jeopardy like what about sean connery was ever anywhere close to Celebrity Jeopardy's Sean Connery. By the end of that series of sketches, they were basically parodying the original sketch. Like, that was... Yeah, like... I I have no idea how they settled on Sean Connery as the central joke there. 
I originally think the joke was Will Ferrell as Alex Trebek. Yeah, and it's just like, like so that that's kind of why I think this, or that's why this one kind of works for me. Is like I don't like a lot of the SNL celebrity impressions are just like already read as nonsense anyway. So like, uh, it's it's realistic. It's a realistic uh, simulacra of SNL. But this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about like how he how Aaron Sorkin kind of worships institutions. Like you want to make that the joke you have to be willing to be mean to snl yeah that's true like well like if you want to say something about it you have to be mean if you do just like if you just want to show that like if all you're trying to do is show that you know your fake show is snl then having an snl like sketch does that like, I guess you're right. Yeah, you, you don't really have. Yeah, you, like you don't have to do anything more than that. I don't know. It's like, I would say, as as much as I hate Studio Sixty, like I, I as much as I hate the show within a show of Studio Sixty, and like just think it's not funny. This episode is definitely like the best it's ever been, and actually seems kind of like feels like it's approaching what it wants to be, uh, more than it's ever been before. I feel like we stopped seeing a lot of the show after this, though. Or at least for yes. a few episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the next scene is the Ed Asner cameo, where uh, Stephen Weber and uh, uh, Amanda Peet are talking about whether or not he uh, she gets to pass on the show. And, I mean, there's it's mostly just the three of them standing around doing a one-liner and then staring at each other and then somebody else, you know, <laughs> doing a one-liner. But, like, they're really good at it. Like, that's, like, Patrek are... Yeah. Like, the tension... I mean, it's not, like, tension exactly, but it's, like, uncomfortable because, like, this is her gazillionaire boss who's, like, you know, not being a piece of shit to her. So it's, like, kind of weird. And then, like, Stephen Weber thinks that he's going to be at the boys' club with it. And the guy's like, eh, no... And so it's just kind of like, I mean, as a scene, it's not great, but I mean, as a scene, it's fine. But like as a scene for the actors, they're all really good. Like, I mean, this is Mm -hmm. that this is not the Jack and Jordan show. They could have done that easily and done that. Like Amanda Peet and Steven Weber have so much simmering, like resentment at each other. It just works. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's their relationship is really good because like I I like the way that Steven Weber is written where like you he's in this like position of like uh, the assumed antagonist but he's not really like he's not bad and he's not really the antagonist he's not really Amanda Peet's antagonist he's just like like he's just like an uh, like an executive guy yeah he just like he doesn't agree with her decision. Like he thinks her decision is bad business. And like, that's the whole extent of their, like of the conflict is like, it's a business uh, disagreement. And you like, yeah, you like, it's kind of framed. Like it's going to be this whole like old boys club kind of thing, but it never like time. And again, like he just kind of backs off and you realize like the, the character develops, like the character of Jack Rudolph develops into this, like, kind of likable guy where he's just like he yeah like he's just a business asshole he's not a he's 
he isn't I, sexist or anything else. He's just a business asshole. I do agree that it's like it would have been really easy to make um, Stephen Weber's character into a more overtly villainous dude here and i like that they didn't have him like try to defend the show on moral grounds he's like yeah i know it's shit it's just gonna make a ton of money yeah <laughs> like, yeah that's, that's what we do here like yeah i think that if they wanted to go for a more structural critique of tv they could have expanded that thought process out um i don't know i yeah. i like i like the concept behind this subplot i don't think it works i think they needed like either one more scene or to push this scene off to the... Like, the next episode takes place the same day as this, right? Okay, yes. Lauren Graham is in the next episode then. Then if it is the... Okay, it starts then, at the rap party. Yeah, okay. Yeah, then they it's should have pushed this off soon. to later or, like, dragged the subplot out a little bit more. But I, I don't know. I feel like her arguing, like, we're going for... to make a prestige network now and therefore we shouldn't put this schlock on. I'm like... This is NBC in 2006. Yeah. Y'all know you're airing The Apprentice, right? <laughs> like, it's it's kind of... I think that... Fuck! This... <laughs> I think that... Too real! Like, Too one real! Of the things, one of the things this scene is doing that I guess we're not really discussing yet is that it's setting up this future plot with Ed Asner and China. Like, so it's... it's it is... It's being like it may even like this whole plot may just be may just have been an excuse to get Ed Asner in a room and have him go China so that um, later when the China deal becomes more like central plot that doesn't come out of nowhere. So like eh, uh, I don't know maybe I that's giving that's giving Sorkin a lot of credit for looking ahead. So, as a writer who I mean, almost never looks ahead or I, I totally up until the moment I forgot West that Wing up. is famously devoid of um uh what's the word I want? Um Foreshadowing. continuity. Yeah, West Wing is famously devoid of continuity, so like giving him continuity credit here feels a little weird, but maybe it is. Uh, oh and while I'm in the while I'm on the subject of giving him credit, credit where it's due, this scene actually uh does do a good job of predicting the future. Ed Asner's going on about how, like, like Ed Asner has just returned from this business trip to China, and he's all, all on about, like, how, you know, China's the next big market, and how, like, you know, teach your well, kids to speak Mandarin, because that's the future. Like, except... Well, he was right. <laughs> but he, he was wrong in that, instead of even considering the teacher-child Mandarin, you instead were going to literally commit to dying from uh, a pandemic... Uh, because you know, MAGA. Like, like we yes. were more willing yeah. to light our entire country on fire than learn Mandarin. Well, yeah, okay, but yes, but China didn't. China hasn't become uh, the power that it is current in present day uh, by itself. Like, it was a lot of Ed Asner types being like, yes, yeah, sure, let's just move our shit to China. We'll just keep, you know, yes, and there's, there's a lot of money to be made in China. There's this whole thing, um, I can't believe I'm admitting this on the air, but there's this guy named Ben Thompson who has this, like, fucking business blog called Stratechery, and, you know, he's smart enough. I mean, he's, he's really smart, 
and it's this thing. But the basic problem is, is that Ed Asner thought he was exporting democracy to China and China was importing um, authoritarianism and media to the United States. Like basically Bill Clinton was a fucking idiot in addition to all of his other problems. He was a fucking idiot on China too. Like they didn't have safeguards in place. Um, you're not you're not giving America enough credit. We didn't need to import authoritarianism in the media, the specific in specific <laughs> cases uh, in the media, like the NBA being affected, but sports media, yeah. I guess, like that's different because that's where all the money really is. But if you can't if you can't find um, American authoritarianism, imported is fine. Yeah, exactly. That's you, you need yeah, somebody to like, tell you. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, we we're we are now standing in the backlash to this movement, but you know, uh, it's credit where it's due. Sorkin is like this is probably the one thing that he's like his one little futurist moment of like, yeah, this is the direction that things are heading. Okay, yes, and, you know, he, we're yeah, not absurdly we're, wrong like everything else. Yeah, he he wasn't wrong about that, and yeah, and now now we're in the backlash to that. So it you know it does. And, and notice he has no shows about, you know, the current reality. Like, Sorkin lost his, uh, his, uh... I have absolutely um, no idea what he's working on right now, actually. He's working on the, uh, trial of the Chicago 7. I can't fucking wait. Oh, but, God, you oh know. God, oh God, oh God, oh God, no, oh God. No, I don't want that. No. He can't, can't even begin to discuss gonna, that without it's gonna be another half-hour diversion. It's gonna be amazing. The last, the last two things of, the last two Sorkin things I remember, like, engaging with are probably the social network and Steve Jobs and honestly having seen both of those I would absolutely murder someone to see the original scripts because I guarantee you both of like Danny Boyle and uh, David Fincher hacked those scripts to pieces I promise you oh yeah oh yeah um... the, so- the social network is too cynical of a movie to ever be like unadulterated Sorkin and um somehow in Steve Jobs you know Steve Jobs is like redeemable hero in a way that Sorkin never even approaches the idea in his other stuff like Danny is never gonna get better like there is no problem with Danny even though like I got a bunch of notes about him from this episode like that's just okay with that's like good with Sorkin right because Matt and Harriet's love story is so unrealistic to him that you know even though it's this you know central focus of the show which we'll talk about in a second but like there's an idealism to the Steve Jobs thing that yes a megalomaniac can like it's like the end of Magnolia right like on the Magnolia DVD, there was this great thing where either Fiona Apple is like yelling about it or Paul Thomas Anderson is yelling to Fiona Apple about it, where he's like yelling at her or something like it's Magnolia going, nobody cares that she smiled. Nobody cares that she smiled. Whereas Steve Jobs is a movie where it's about caring that Steve Jobs smiles or whatever. Like that's not a sort of thing. That's a Danny Boyle train spotting one thing. It's a really weird fucking mix. And it's why Sorkin doing movies is arguably much better, but 
I feel like he belongs on TV, even if it was just for like some terrible. Well, no, I'd be mortified if he did the newsroom during Trump. What am I saying? Because it'd be it'd oh be boy, it'd be Maggie uh, Haberman the hero. Um, sorry, everyone. Oh, it's really close to the election, and it's September 2020, and bad things are just happening every day. And sorry, kind of on the brain. Yeah. Um, yes. So so let's get to the wrap up of Harriet and Matt's storyline. Um, yes. Which is I don't even. I, we, we've talked a lot, a lot this episode about how how Aaron Sorkin can't see the future and just that bit where she's talking about how, like, them their romance is the country healing. I'm like, Jesus Christ, Aaron. Okay, I mean, and I this know comes... This is 14, I, have four, I have 14 years of hindsight on this episode, but still. Yeah, it's, it's just... She's just all in on this, and you're... And I mean, she... And Matt Perry, because like Matt Perry and um, Bradley Whitford actually aren't in this episode that much uh, compared to everything else. It is the supporting cast, Christine Lottie and Amanda Peet and um, Stephen Mm -hmm. Weber. But, uh, you know, so my note is that Sarah Paulson makes it convincing that there is a person who wanted nothing more in the world of all time to make out with Matthew Perry and couldn't do it, and it, like, rocked her to her core, and that was a convincing 90 seconds of just, like, pure cinematic magic. It's too long for a movie, so, like, pure television magic, where she's, like, staring at his lips, and I'm like, oh, my God, why doesn't she just kiss him? This would just, oh. I was just like, oh. It just got me. This thing is playing Fields of Gold. Right. Oh, on the loot. Yeah, and they... They've got Sting and, for some reason, Anton Chigurh uh, playing on the lute. And he then... does look like Anton Chigurh, you're right. <laughs> but that was so distracting. Uh, but, God, yeah, you're right. This this scene with, uh, with Matthew Perry and Sarah Paulson is like, God, you just... You just want to see these kids be happy, you know? Right? Like, you just you just want them to heal. You just want them to come together. And right they after I get have... done with the episode is when The Rock endorsed Joe Biden. I'm like, okay, that's actually the yeah. best endorsement he's ever going to have for beating Trump. So, like, this moment just is the, the most Rock. hopeful for next month. Just have The Rock wrestle Donald Trump. It's fine. But yeah, so that moment. But I, we did skip over when um, Simon tells Harriet that he has, he and Tom have told a reporter why they broke up, oh, that yeah. Matt got stoned on painkillers and fucked her coworker, and then they fought about it in front of everybody and all of it. And Simon just looks at her and she's just like, you guys are just really stupid, huh? And he's like, yep turns and gets his makeup done <laughs> and she just like makes this weird mugging look for the camera and i'm like also that's a great moment like the scene up to it but the mugging where like all of a sudden she's just like yeah that that that's i mean this is this episode i love sarah paulson's mugging. so much yes it's just amazing she does it so much like there's also this kind of like almost running joke where like every time she's in a scene like it happens several times in this episode where she's she's on stage she's doing a bit and then um t- 
Timothy Busfield will just be like, okay, that's it. We're good. And then as soon as the cameras are off, she just does this, like, like she'll just mug at the cameras or, like, just make a big goofy face. And it's just, it's so good every yeah. time. <laughs> it's just like, they needed to film five full episodes of this stupid show or something, or, like, around the making of it and give the cast time to, like, settle into how it's going to work. And then they, if they'd started this from scratch instead of all the awkward steps, like you wouldn't have lost all those people between episodes, probably two and three. Like, I'm, I'm, yeah. also, I'm going to be honest though. Like I've been doing some more like live performing stuff. I've like been appearing in an online theater group. I've been doing my Twitch streams. And if someone drops that kind of bombshell on me 40 seconds before I'm going live, when I'm done, I'm ripping their throat out with my teeth. Well, I are, you, also, are you a Christian? I also want to. <laughs> I mean, like, are you a Christian? No. I also want to just point out how hilarious the D.L. Hughley's line is, where he delivers that, where he says, "We need to talk about this whole your personal life thing." <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, D.L. Hughley is fine. Yeah. that's good. It's, it's good. so fine. good. It's like, yeah. Uh, so there's been a problem with uh, your personal life. We told everyone about it. I, I was just trying to like imagine this happening on SNL in like 1987. Like you know, I don't know whoever just was imagining on, someone like, turns saying that to, to Jan Hooks and is like, yeah, well, no, because it's entirely based on her being a woman. Like that's like the subtext that Sorkin yeah. doesn't get at all. This is when I'm like, oh yeah, we're back to it being Sorkin again. Like he took over from the outline at this point, where he's just like, oh yeah female co-worker who's more popular than all of the male co-workers um we just you know turned your life into tabloid fodder after you really didn't want it to do that and it's time for my makeup it's just like yep that's sorkin that's sorkin just being like but then paulson just makes it work that's just like she just makes fair, that fair. moment to be fair in order to imagine this happening on snl in 87 you have to imagine them both coached to the gills <laughs> Just, hey, we need to talk about what? What? <laughs> um, I, I don't believe yeah, I that the, I, SNL gets along that well. I mean, like, oh no! As far as I can tell, from all the behind-the-scenes stuff I've ever read about SNL, especially class SNL, everyone hates everyone all the time. Yeah, I mean, they were all. Yeah. We'll do an SNL special someday. Um, but yeah, so and we also like this is also where in the episode. Danny that we mentioned earlier gets to tell Jordan that he has street cred with the young <laughs> playwrights who are coming out to Hollywood in 2006 to make television shows. The young New York playwrights. So about the UN. About the UN. Yeah. In, in 2006. Maybe that happened in 1986. Uh, maybe because... And it, maybe it even happened in 1990 when he went from doing plays to Hollywood. But when's the last time there's been a playwright whose name is known and it wasn't a musical? It, it's been since 2006. He's the last non, playwright anybody heard of non, in the mainstream. Jesus, a non-musical is... I mean, there's plenty of writers who have, like, transitioned to tv or movies but you don't you don't get famous writing plays anymore no. there's the guy who did proof 
like proof was a big hit on broadway and it seemed and it that was the one where when it didn't hit as a movie i was like okay we're seeing a change in um i mean the, the problem high, is that like the pseudo new york high bro. theater the, the new york theater scene is kind of it, the this is a bigger issue and i'm not going to talk about it too much here because it's a much larger issue than just studio 60 but the new york theater scene and i say this as someone who lives like I'm like 40 minutes outside of New York City right now. Uh, that there is, it is too expensive and too um, too split for anyone to really get famous because you can't, you, people can't just like decide to go see a theater show because there's 20 of them playing at the at once. Phantom and Wicked both want both both want tickets and all those tickets are crazy expensive. Right. So. so- so you can't get famous making plays anymore, except yeah. maybe among other writers who all, who do go to see shows. And they, then you just stay in New York City because I'm sorry, Aaron Sorkin, this show does not make sense taking place in L.A. I'm sorry. And then what happens to you? You 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 fizzle after a season, and you end up working in a writer's room, hoping in ten years you launch another show. Like I interviewed TV writers, and they work miserable they have miserable lives like around this time too um you know they're getting home at 10 at night you know after getting to the fucking writer's room at six in the morning and it's just like and then everybody it, it, thanks to Aaron sorkin everybody just shit talks writer's rooms all the time so it's just like you're just hoping I mean, you break somehow like i I'm, i was gonna say like the uh, from the TV writers I know, um, the 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 route everyone really hopes to follow as a TV writer is what I've come to call the Vince Gilligan route, which is you write some really good episodes of a pre-existing show, and that gives you like the cred to make your own shows. Uh, but I don't know how often that really happens. I can't think of anyone other than Vince Gilligan it's happened to, frankly. Maybe <clears throat> that one dude who wrote the end, the last episode, what's the name of the dude? The the guy who wrote, like, the ending to Lost and everyone got mad at him. Uh, I didn't, I didn't make it. I have no idea. Yeah, I did, <laughs> uh, didn't he, make he, it to the end of Lost. <laughs> I, I didn't get past the second season of Lost either, but he, they keep bringing him in to, like, fix troubled projects and his, um... Kind of a bad writer. I'm trying to remember. Okay, now I want to know who this is. Um, Damon Lindelof. Damon Lindelof. Oh, that's his name. Fuck that guy. Uh, Sorry. Oh God, that guy sucks. (laughs) I'm sorry. I fucking hate Watchmen. I mean, I love, I respect Watchmen's production values, and I love many of the performances, but fuck that show. Fuck Damon Lindelof. (laughs) I'm looking at his uh his writing credits for movies: Cowboys and Aliens, Prometheus, Star Trek Into Darkness. World War Z. Yeah, hang on. Tomorrow. The, cowboy, the Cowboys and Aliens lo- Defender has locked on. I like that movie. <laughs> I saw that movie in theaters and I couldn't tell you a thing about it. Oh, I'm um, not even positive who's in it. It's, uh, it's got Harrison Ford in it. I remember yeah. that. I, I remember that the aliens have really funny design where they have like uh, tiny Wait. tiny arms on their chests. No, that's that the one where... That's the one where the Native Americans save the fucking day and, like, the Cowboys yes. just Yes, yes it suck. is. <laughs> so it's, like, point... It it's just, like, oh, so the script isn't racist, but the branding is? Like, what? Like, what the... F- yeah, it's... 
<laughs> it does. It does have Daniel like, Craig in it. Okay, so here's the question I have to ask for you. So it's a cowboy movie, right? Right. And it has Daniel Craig in it, right? Yeah. Right. Is he doing an absurd comedy southern accent? No. I don't think so. No, Damn he's it. doing. A he's not. Very, no, he's not. No. <clears throat> he's not Foghorn Leghorn. He, no. He's horning it up. I'm just saying, no. like. He did an absurd comedy southern accent in Logan Lucky. Great movie. He did an absurd mm. comedy southern accent in Knives Out. Great movie. I'm just saying. Those are those are both Wait. recent. This is this is Daniel Craig when he was hungry to be a star. It was before you know you weren't going to be a megastar anymore. I'm just, um, I'm just saying, dude. Like okay. he should be doing an absurd comedy southern. southern I don't disagree with movies. you. I don't. I don't disagree with you at all. But, yes, um, this includes have, the James Bond movie. Have, have you seen Road to Perdition? <laughs> I have. Okay. I like Road to Perdition. Okay. What, it's what fine. am I missing here? Nothing. Nothing. I don't want to fight about Road to Perdition. It's fine. <laughs> Especially after I'm, I'm uh. talking about the schmaltz in this. Cut this out. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> no, no, fuck no. So, so we're now process. we're now approaching twice the length of the actual episode. Yeah, I think we're I think we're actually done now, though. I think. We're what else do we have to done. say about this? I think I need to read. I need to get up and go grab the DVD yes. so I can read off the preview to the next episode before we get sidetracked again. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else interesting to say about this episode. Because uh, it it ends with them not kissing, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They they clearly very much want to kiss, but then they're both just telling each other about how they're gonna go off and and see score. someone else. They're gonna go off and score yeah. with like bimbos and himbos. Like, yeah, it's, it's great. Yike. Yeah. One yike. You have Harriet's no gonna go one yike. meet her baseball himbo at the party, and uh, Matt's gonna get. Gonna go join Bradley Whitford for some uh, questionable activities. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's it. Uh, I, we, this is why we can't go this long without recording an episode again. One, because I will forget that I need to have the DVD next to me, and two, yeah, there's because a we, lot of we just build up a lot of topics we want to talk about. There's <laughs> a lot of topics have built up. <laughs> okay, so the next okay. episode is entitled "The Rap Party," and the description on the DVD reads. The week's show is over. Time to party. But it's a party where work, play, and politics mix. Uh-oh, politics. Oh, God. Uh, politics so in an Aaron Sorkin show? That's... that's it's like more la- likely than you think. That's the laziest description we've had so far. Like, it doesn't have any of the... The... the do you want to read? Do you want me to read the next one after that, too? The no, let's not spoil it. No, let's, no, don't spoil it. It's, it's a lot. We can't. Right, so I think that's we it. can't. You know, turn this back if we if we ever you know dig too deep. So yeah. <laughs> All right. So until next time, until the watch rap party. Um, I'm Jamie McConaughey. I'm Andrew Wycliffe. I'm Brendan Pollock, and oh, actually, I do have one last thing to say. Oh no. It's that there is a good show about the UN. Well, actually, it's a good movie about the un it's in the loop and it's dark yes, as fuck that is a good movie and it's based on a british it's exactly show. as yes it's exactly as dark as it needs to be yes that yes in the loop it, Everybody that's been bot- sorry that. yeah that's been bothering me I, I was trying to remember it earlier and it just finally came to me sorry for interrupting the sign yeah. off no it, like I think yeah. that's a good, in the I loop think... is exactly as dark 
to as a UN show needs to be in order to be good. Yes. Because uh, yeah, it's just about how how much of a fucking disaster the um, Afghanistan and Iraq wars were. And I I think getting uh, sidetracked in during the sign off is very on brand for us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, especially this episode. Like especially this episode. Yeah. All right. Good night, everyone. Yeah. Uh, good night. Good night, luck. Y'all. <laughs>